Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's August, so this week and next we'll be taking our annual summer break. We've still got two pretty great shows for you, though. We'll re-air my 2017 conversation with artist Wayne Tebow this week and next. Next month, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art will offer two Tebow exhibitions, Paintings and Drawings, a presentation of Tebow's and SF MoMA's collection, and Artist's Choice, a Tebow-selected installation of artworks also from SF MoMA's collection. Both shows open on September 29th. Wayne Tebow, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Precarity, a new three-channel video installation created by John Acomfra, the London-based artist and filmmaker. Precarity explores the city of New Orleans through the remarkable life and times of Charles Buddy Bolden, the first person known to have explored the sonic tonalities of the music we now call jazz. Beginning in 1900, Buddy Bolden was the most popular musician in New Orleans, celebrated for his raucously loud cornet and down-and-dirty style. King Bolden reigned until 1907, when he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana with schizophrenia. Precarity presents a sonographic and visual history of Bolden and his legend, the emergence of jazz, and the incomparable city of New Orleans. Precarity is part of the Nasher Museum's permanent collection. It's on view through September 2nd at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2018, the fourth edition of its biennial featuring artists working throughout greater Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curators Ann Elgood and Aaron Cristoval, Made in L.A. 2018 fills the entire museum and features the work of 33 artists. Through drawings, paintings, sculpture, textiles, performance, video, photography, and installations, many newly commissioned expressly for the biennial, these artists exemplify the diverse and creative landscape of Los Angeles today. Find details and a full summer of related programs at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2018 is on view now through September 2nd at the Hammer Museum. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Joris Larman Lab, Design in the Digital Age, an in-depth look at the innovative work of acclaimed Dutch designer Joris Larman. From furniture generated by algorithms to designs brought to life by robots, this exhibition showcases Larman's furniture, design experiments, drawings, videos, renderings, 3D printing innovations, and much more. On view through September 16th. Visit mfah.org slash Larman, L-A-A-R-M-A-N, for more. Combo Chimbita delivers a delicious mix of cumbia, salsa, reggae, 1970s Funana from Cape Verde, and Compa from Haiti. Hear this New York-based band on Saturday, August 25th at 6 p.m. as part of Off the 405, a free summer concert series bringing today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Wayne Tebow, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start with a 1959 painting titled Beach Boys, a picture with which you've opened a number of exhibitions over the years. As any art lover immediately recognize, it's your take on Cezanne's bather. And it's your take before you developed your trademark paint handling. Why do you like to start shows with, with that 1959 painting? It indicates the primary interest I have with painting as painting made with hands 
uninterrupted and not influenced by photography, and influence expressed specifically. In that case, I was enamored of a Spanish painter by the name of Joaquin Sorolla, and his work was entrancing to me. I didn't know anyone knew about him. I found it in a little pasted-in color photograph in the state library <laughs> and uh, asked people about it. They didn't seem to know him, except when I talked to, to an art editor at Art News, Thomas Hess, and I asked him if he knew a painter by the name of Joaquin Sorolla. He said, oh, yeah, the John Singer Sergeant of Spain, he said. So then I had to sort of tell myself I better get some information about him. And he influenced me very much in that wonderful tradition of painting, premier coup painting, where you have to make an awful lot of mistakes to make those risks. And that then I realized that he had come through that marvelous tradition of Velasquez and Manet and so on. But the responsibility was to try and see what I could do with it. And at that point, I was painting a lot of abstract expressionist paintings as well. And I thought, maybe there's something here that I can combine together and see if I can get something out of that. And that was sort of the story of the Beach Boys. But I had also grown up on the beach in Southern California. Long Beach. And I'd sold papers on the beach, and I'd walked the beach. And I was even in high school a temporary summer lifeguard in high school. It seemed like a love of intimate concern. Are you one of the two Beach Boys? Is there anything autobiographical no, there? No, it's actually, there's a little detail of, as I remember, a Soroya or a Muriel painting of a boy sitting down. And that difficult to explain that the units of impression that came from those coupled with memory is what the painting is about. There's one other early painting I'd like to ask about. It's from 1957. It's been reproduced a lot. I've never seen it in person. It's called Banana Window. It's in the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show. It's not in the show. And it's full of quick, fragmented brushstrokes, and there's a lot of negative space between the brushstrokes. Is, is it Soroya? Is it an address of Cezanne? Because it kind of looks like the late kind of watercolory drawings with the negative space. And it also, the one other artist that struck me that it has a, a good bit of is, is John Marin. I don't know if you're a Marin fan, but it very much feels like Marin's early attempts at oils. That's a good reference, and it's one which I certainly experienced. Marin was an interesting influence in watercolor, I remember. That painting was made in New York on a series of little scraps of canvas I bought while I went to New York to try to uh, meet my heroes. And at night I walked the uh, streets and didn't sketch, as I remember, from windows, but remember I'd go back and I'd pin them up just on a wall and there might have been as many as 20 or 30 of little sketches oh. of windows like that. Shoe stores, jewelry stores, little grocery stores, 
rib- ribbon stores, like those wonderful things in New York where they have one store selling 10 soldiers or something. That might explain the 1980-something jewelry painting, which you made, which I've never quite been able to figure out where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> so the exhibition at the Minetti Shrem, we're, we're taping this before it opens, of course, but it will start before you get to your, your trademark style, when your your paint and brush handling was what looks to me like it's shorter and stabbier and most of all quicker. I've read some interviews you've done with former students who you taught when you were a professor at UC Davis in which they tell you how clearly you told them about the relationship between moving the brush quickly across the canvas or slowly across the canvas and how that related to how a viewer experiences a painting. What was the beginning of your understanding of that? Maybe sign painting. Oh, right back to the very beginning of when you were Mm -hmm. still in Long Beach. So what did you learn from... from I I didn't go to art school, as you probably know, but I had a lot of wonderful people who showed me how to do things. And there was an old sign painter watched me as a little... uh, I was really sort of cleaning brushes in the sign shop or whatever else they had me do. And I got to do some show cards, which is a poster board and done with a with a sign painting brush with certain, you learn to make certain movements, single strokes, curved strokes. And the trick is to try and do what they call a one-shot kind of painting. That is, you don't crab it, you don't render it, you strike it directly. And he watched me try to make O's. And I had not learned how to make that brush turn so that you could make it in two strokes. So I had to go back and sort of clean it up with a little brush. And he saw me doing this old wise German sign painter with a big walrus mustache. He says, why do you uh, have to go back and clean up the work? You should be able to do that directly. And I said, I don't know. I just said, he says, well, let me watch you make that. Oh, so... I mixed up the paint, sat down, and I started to work, and he moved around in front of me. And I said, aren't you going to watch me make the stroke? He says, yeah, I'm going to watch you. Just go ahead and make the stroke. And so I did what I did, and he says, now I know what your problem is. He says, you're looking where you're going and not where you need to go. Hmm. In other words, you have to risk going to the place where you know it has to end up. You don't trigger along the way. That's crabbing and moving too slowly. You have to just sit down for about an hour, just make these strokes and watch where you want to go. And you'll find you'll be able to do that. The wonder of the brush, which we inherit over so many years, is great evidence of what that treasure trove of actually tools of looking and responding, how much that means to painters and how they use it so wonderfully. And that's why when they asked de Kooning how he did his paintings, he held up brushes, if you remember. I got a big brush, I got a little brush. <laughs> you paint with a brush. So the gumball machine paintings are a tip of your cap to that experience and that learning? Well, that coupled with Walt Disney experience of drawing Mickey Mouse's ah, the circles. trousers. The circles? Buttons. The buttons, ah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it looks like the early paintings in the Minetti Shrem show are painted with those quicker, shorter brush strokes. But then, of course, by the time we get to, say, 62, 63, you're all the way making these just lush, rich, thick brushstroke white background type painting that mm. for which you know you would become famous and 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 yeah. you know your mature style has fully arrived do you remember <clears throat> what in 61 2 or 3 got you from shorter quicker stabbier brushstrokes to to the more mature style what what the transition was i don't think i do it wasn't a conscious thing it was a sort of un predictable series of events where when I came back from New York after meeting those wonderful painters I admire so much, particularly de Kooning and Klein, I was making all these uh, what I thought were the signs of art, drips or smudges or fancy signatures or whatever you could sort of think of that would make it look like what I naively thought of, well, that's what <laughs> art is. And he said to me, de Kooning, says, you're, you've got some abilities and you're, you're wasting them on making the signs of art rather than thinking about what it is you want to do. Why do you want to paint anyway? He says, you have to find something that you're really interested in, which has meant something to you, which you've actually experienced, or uh, give it up. There are too many of people running around copying the signs of art and uh, that's and learn something more continually about art history. I remember he was very much interested in art history. But anyway, when I came back then to Sacramento in reference to your question was, well, I guess I'd sort of better start over. I can uh, paint things, but he admonishes me to paint something that means something to you. Well, I didn't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to make some sort of formal enterprise which would guide me back to very fundamental things. And I, I know about the basic units that make composition and design and color. So I said, well, I'll start with a the format and began to put some planes down and I'll put some other shapes on, circles or uh, ovals. And that actually, I started making these ovals and thinking about where I'd worked in restaurants and seeing, remember seeing rows of pies. So all from memory, I thought, well, I'm going to make very plain triangles that sit on a plate properly and or try to orchestrate them, make them slightly different so that there's a kind of tempo or rhythm or sort of repetitive series of shapes that should orchestrate themselves into something very fundamental. And I ended up with, I remember thinking pies, and I put this pumpkin pie color down. I thought, my God, that's ugly. And... There were some leftover initial scribes, ovals and things, which were different colors. And those little edges, I see oranges and blues, which were just actually beginning drawings in paint. And that seemed to uh, somehow compromise and 
somehow internalize color into this color of a pumpkin blues. I'll just leave that. I'll leave that on the edge and see how that works. And ended up with this this pie. And said to myself, "Well, there's a there's a nothing. <laughs> Good luck with that." But I couldn't leave it alone. Suddenly, I thought, well, I'm going to pursue this because it's really intriguing. And began to do a series of that and began to think of other things which I had seen and experienced, things that I thought had sort of been overlooked. I had painted pinball machines and Coke bottles, ball gum machines, but they were all encased in all those signs of art. In other words, a lot of silver paint and a lot of gestures, sort of thinking, well, I don't want to really say too quickly that this is a gumball machine. So it was a, an odd, very curious kind of almost non-thinking, I think. But the results of these silly paintings then began to just be a really interesting thing to do. So I went on with it. But at the same time, I wore a parachute. I kept doing those other kinds oh, of did? paintings. I kept on because I had just started teaching because I had a family and uh, realized I've got to make a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this I was kept, you were still at Sac State? Or were you at Davis by then? I was at the City College. Oh, you were at City Sacramento College. Sacramento City College. Yeah. Did you paint over those those parachute, those whatever, life jacket. Did you paint it? Let me try that again. <laughs> uh, those, uh, those were kept around because oh, I had, had a little following ah. in Sacramento. Wonderful people here su helped support me with rental gallery paintings. And, ah. uh, so they're out in the world somewhere. Yeah. And they were uh, very much a part of our, when we started our con uh, artist contemporary artist cooperative gallery here. Yeah. I was going to ask you about de Kooning later, but seeing as you brought him up, you you went and lived in New York for about a year before coming back to Northern California. Right. As far as I can remember, you were one of the very few, if not the only, of the Northern California painters, all of whom loved de Kooning, Diebenkorn Park, right. who had firsthand experience with de Kooning, who went and, and sat at the knee, so to speak. Did coming back here... I should clarify that. Tyler, because he was very easy to approach. And I went back, actually, just the first time I met him to try and get him to let us come to his studio because we were taking students back there so we'd get a trip to New York. I sat and had tea with him. He was very generous. I watched him paint a little bit. And he he said, well, maybe, we, maybe when your students come. But he knew he was not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't want to see a bunch of junior college students. Did coming back here with de Kooning stories and being able to relate to other Northern California painters, things he'd told you, did that give you a certain currency here? Did that, did, did the Diebenkorns, even into the 60s, want to hear those stories? Well, you know, I didn't get to know Dick until pretty later. Like much 62 later. or 3 or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I met him uh, making... Uh, Prince, actually, at Catherine's basement studio. Catherine Brown uh, yeah. at Crown Point, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, he, the first 
connection between you two that I found was in 61 when he was the juror for an Oakland Museum juried art show, and he was the juror and awarded you a prize. That's right, um, he did. But I didn't really know him then. Mm. I knew about him. So in, in, the, in the decades since the early 60s, kind of the, the, the Elmer Bischoff and David Park and Paul Warner way of painting has, has come to be known as the, the loaded brush way of painting. Did you identify with the loaded brush guys? You weren't in San Francisco. You were in Sacramento. Yeah, they all came to be friends later. And we became pretty good friends, drawing together and actually visiting and so on. I didn't think of myself because they sort of had their club intact, and I was not part of that. I admired them greatly. I admired Bischoff. I admired Park. I didn't know Park. I knew Bischoff and Devon Corn and Paul Warner, Bill Brown, and Nate Oliveira. So in that sense, I was acquainted with them, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I was part of that circle. One other early question on on the style of your paintings. You mentioned the brushes you would use while doing sign painting. Did you still use any of those brushes on canvas or did you move on to whole different brushes? No, I used those. I used all kinds of brushes. Yeah, I used sign painting brushes. Let's talk about how you made and make still life paintings. Did you, do you set up models of cupcakes or whatever and then paint from them? No, they're all from memory. Even at the very beginning? Yeah, oh, wow. even at the beginning. So the lighting that's in those even early still life paintings, super bright light, tons and tons of light, that all came from your your experience working in L.A. in the, in the film industry, came from your interest in light and painting. How did those paintings get so much bright light in them? It's still from memory, but a memory coded in light source regulation. In other words, when, I, when we teach lighting, which, which is the basis of studying plaster casts or anything like that, is simply to observe the light source and the, the shadow core and the highlight and the dark reflected light and cast shadow. Those are all tools to give you an acquaintance with how you make your light. So... All of those food things are lit from memory and from actually a uh, program, formula. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when when you would paint figures, you would paint from models. That's totally different. So tell me why. (laughs) Tell me why you could do one from memory, but for figures you needed models. The figure is impossible to paint. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean uh, that... We know the figure so well and live with it that we can find the slightest thing wrong with the best portrait mm-hmm. there is or the best figure painting drawing. I have a little book of the best figure drawings from all over the United States art schools, and every one of them has some flaw. So if what happens in figure painting generally to be successful are determined, determined styles and programs and uh, prejudices, a program that determines its base and and offers the criticism of its character, whether it's cubism, fauvism, surrealism, impressionism, all of those are uh, conventions. 
Each convention is the basis upon which a painting is judged. So in something like figure painting, mostly when you see figure painting, it takes on a convention, a very specific one. Whether it's the academic one through Ang, for instance, whether it's premier coup painting of direct examination of a one-to-one memory of what you've just seen, like Velasquez. See, all, all painting is from memory, but the shorter the memory, the closer you are then to determining what you're actually looking at. Conventions take you away from that and tell you when you're doing an impressionist figure like Sarah, you're only going to be able to see so much detail. And on and on. Then the figures work a lot better. But the toughest thing is to take on some sort of clarity of proper relationship, part part structure, part the anatomical correctness, proportion, and so on. And that's damn near impossible to do well. One of the things that distinguishes all of these paintings, whether you're figurative paintings or your 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 still life paintings are the sh- are the shadows. And your shadows are probably the most distinct shadows since Pierre Bernard's. First off, were Bernard's shadows important to you? Bernard very important, right. Specifically the shadows? I hadn't thought of the shadows, but certainly the color and the use of color. His his palette is the same palette now I ask the students to use warm and cool of each primary. So you have two reds, two yellows, two blues, and black and white. That allows you to make almost any color that you want. So the shadows, the other aspect of it is the enormous variation is built into the shadow in terms of possibility. Shadow can be almost anything where the object can't. So if you put a piece of pie down, you can have it have almost no shadow or a long, very long shadow in between, a color shadow, a very intense one, an almost ephemeral one. So those options of the shadow are another wonderful tool for compositional variety and pleasure. A lot of times when I look at your paintings, I think the shadows are the parts you must have worked hardest on. Yes, the background and the shadows are enormously important. It's one of the most difficult things to get students to do. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a fairly recent painting that's kind of oddly dated of yours called Cupcake and Shadow. It's dated 95 to 2012. It's a single solitary cupcake on a ground with a dramatic shadow. And it looks a heck of a lot like a Monet haystack. Were, were those were Monet's shadows important? Yes, very much so, because they're uh, opposing. In other words, they're, he saw that by observation, looking at a kind of ochre wheat field with a bright sunlight casting its shadow on this form. He stared at it. And if you stare in the sunlight at that color, you'll get its negative afterimage, right? Which is purple, towards purple. 
So that essentially is the uh, potential for coloration in terms of his uses. And it gives you lots of, again, license to build in wonderful colors into a what can be rather an ordinary scene. And fauvism is the same thing. The main structural character of a composition is its value structure. And the value structure can then be articulated into the following three elements. It can be a, a hue, a value, or an intensity. And fauvism is dependent on that structural character and the possibilities for it. Or Darren is probably one of the best of those, I think. His, his fauve paintings are among my... We'll, 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 I think we'll, we'll come to fauvism in a bit. I have more on fauvism. I think we're, there aren't a whole lot of us who probably like to sit around talking about fauvism these days, right? Cubism is so eclipsed it in the United States. You mentioned the, the, the different colors in shadows, and I had lined up a painting to reference about that, that very thing, and it's 1971's Four Cupcakes. And the shadows of the four cupcakes are blue, yellow, orange, and green. And often you outline the, 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 the shadows with a bright-hued color or, or colors, multiple colors in one outline mm, of the right. shadow. Yeah. So a couple things about that. In a painting like that, it obviously mattered to you that the shadows were different colors. Why? Variations get away from boredom, hopefully. And just because it, for me, uh, most of the judgment of painting for me is based just on feeling. How does it feel? Does it feel too much? Does it go over it? Is it melodramatic? Is it a kind of ineffable, like in Morandi? His primaries are so unprimary that they become beautiful, just ineffably in terms of their glowing richness with such limited means. So if you vary the color of the shadows, you're keeping any one color or shadow from being too much. Trying to keep the value the same. Mm, oh, value the same. Yeah. Otherwise, it would uh, look pretty rickety and uh, difficult to get the, the form to come together very well. What I'm a, acting like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, God. There are a lot of paintings that what a bore. suggest that. <laughs> what, <laughs> what are the... <laughs> You know, one of the things uh, that you do and have done with shadows for decades is that you don't just allow the shadow to blend into the white background or whatever color the background is. You often outline the shadow with well, one color or more often a series of colors. Why do you outline the edge of the shadow with color? Color that's different from what the shadow is, I should say. I was surprised to know that I was a cubist. Thomas Hess told me I was a cubist. The most New York thing anybody ever said. Well, he's right, actually, because I like I'm I'm my what modernist there is in me is essentially a fascination with the flat that can seem not flat, and the the great effect that someone like Degas can have, and keep that surface active in spite of the illusion sort of references. The plastic character, the beauty, the richness. And someone once said to him, supposedly, about the beauty of a landscape they were looking at. 
says, man, look at that wonderful deep space. Isn't that a beautiful picture you would make? And Degas said, yes, it would make a good flat picture. And you know, if you're attuned to Cezanne, really, that they, you know what he means. Because that was a relief, in a way, of Cezanne, that he gave us the flat reference continually, or ways to get at the flatness of the picture. Is that why you like bright white so much? Because it flattens out pictures? I like the ambiguity of it, where it's either like gold, mm-hmm. either in, intimate gold and painting. infinite, like endless, or immediate. That duality is what keeps the pictures, for me, on that modernist ethos. It's, uh, that's the way I see modernism, anyway. This is a total stab in the dark. Is Moby Dick important to you? The novel Moby Dick? Because there's, you know, such an address of whiteness in, in Moby Dick, and whiteness is a background yeah. on which all of America exists. I don't, I can't say that it, it made it any connection to mm-hmm. me outside of its literary beauty and interest. Interesting question. I thought I'd take a shot. <laughs> you never know. One, one way we could continue is to talk about groupings of paintings and just go grouping to grouping to grouping. I'm going to try not to do that and to try to kind of meander a bit. So let's talk about Richard Diebenkorn for a moment. Never mind <clears throat> when you met him. We talked about that a moment ago. When did his work become interesting or even important to you? Do you remember? I think almost the first time I saw it. Oh, wow. So late 50s? Yeah, maybe even earlier. Oh, wow. Didn't know him as we determined. Yeah. But, no, his work was very, very uh, impressive to me. I th- almost think of Dick actually as a French painter, oddly enough. I mean, the Bernard, the Matisse, the. Yeah, the, the good dressing, the good salad, the good touch. Have you ever made paintings that you've thought of as a specific address of Diebenkorn? This painting is an address of something in him? Oh, yes. I'm very influenced by him. Such as? Is there any one or two paintings uh, that you think is a particularly clear example? Tabletop still lifes. Cups of coffee. Um, Cityscapes, where he makes those wonderful cast shadows of buildings be as important as the building. That Those was are the very late, influential. Late 50s. His color, wherein he, in his lines, he'll have a single line, but with as many as six colors in the line. That's very influential to me. Does that live in your paintings and the edges of the shadows, maybe? Possibly. His pentamente, leaving your tracks as access to your thought process, his uh, willingness to do that, his uh, admonition about not going headlong, a very important lesson in thinking about your work, studying your work, analyzing your work, so that you don't get convenient in the way in which you're working how long he would look at his own work, and when we got acquainted, how we'd sit together and look at the work. His or yours? His work. In Ocean Park, 
when we visited. There were all the clues for his paintings, looking out that transit window and seeing the abutments and the green grass and so on, and the house, little houses, rows. But just how he would look and smoke, unfortunately, at the painting and then uh, ask, he might he would ask me something like, what do you think? So I would look as carefully as I could and give him as honest a reaction as well. Maybe something in the upper right-hand corner. Yes, exactly, he said. He'd go up and do something. And I had exactly the same experience with de Kooning. Where he would where, ask? Where he got up from our conversation, took a page from the funny papers, and pressed it into a section of a wet painting. That was startling. <laughs> And he said the same thing. That feels better now. What is is that about? Well, I think collage maybe was invented for that very reason. Ah. It reestablishes the plane again upon which you're making your judgments in relationship to the compositional analysis. A startling restart. Just pasting something down. Then, of course, it makes its own convention of, well, I'll do it all over <laughs> yeah, yeah, and have everything flat by collage. Maybe I'm getting off the track, but those things are very useful f- for students as well to reorient the condition by which they're trying to re-establish what's wrong with their work or what's needed in their work. You mentioned the Ocean Park paintings. Stephen Ocean Parks start in 67-ish. Your San Francisco-esque cityscapes start in 1972 or so when you bought a house in the city, I think in the Potrero Hill District. I understand the relationship between your having a house in the city and your cityscapes, but were you consciously mindful of engaging the Ocean Park paintings with those cityscapes? It would have been a, a slight thing, maybe, if conscious, very, very conscious, I admired those, of course, but I hadn't thought of those, what I was looking for. I actually, he wanted a kind of equilibrium, and I kind of wanted a disequilibrium. But some of the same tools are there, the diagonals. Oh, yeah. They were influenced by him, certainly. The way, the way in the Ocean Park paintings, it's color that leads a viewer to kind of recede beyond the picture plane. I mean, they're very flat, but, but you know, the layers of color mm-hmm. provide this illusion of space, whereas in your cityscapes, the illusion of space is provided by, by the roads and the diagonals, and yeah. the paint itself is flat. Different projective systems were used, which I didn't think Korn was very interested in. But my interest was to use, hopefully, various projective systems attempting to bring them together into a unification. And it's right, I think, whether I ever did it successfully or not, because that equivocation also sort of interested me, not to have a a settled, not to settle the thing, but to keep the paint, trying to keep the painting alive 
whether it's like a Matisse tension idea or whether it's a disequilibrium mm. notion. But the cityscapes were about a 14-year project overall. We'll probably come back to them. I really love them. <laughs> but, but in the context of Diebenkorn, two other questions. Who painted cigar boxes first, you or him? No, the Macchioli painted the cigar boxes oh. first. You know their work? No. The Italian Macchioli group? No. They painted on cigar boxes very often. And that's where you both got the idea? I don't know where Dick got the idea. But that's where you got the idea. I got the idea from the Macchioli. Did you smoke cigars? Pretentiously sometimes. (laughs) I feel like a big shot. (laughs) There is one painting, at least one painting of yours of a cigar. Yeah. Um, It's just been lit and it's sitting in an I love the idea of cigars more than smoking. (laughs) (laughs) You and Diebenkorn both painted a lot of coffee cups. His were more clearly on tables, yours, such as one in the Minetti Shrem show, I think a 61 painting just sits on a white ground. Hmm. For you, did the coffee cups come from him or did the coffee cups come from somewhere else? Well, I, I did know that he uh, did the coffee. It probably came from him. I even have a lit- that lithograph of his, the hmm. coffee cup. It's a little different. From that. Since mine is from memory, it's just a sort of a classic coffee cup as I think of it. It's pretty much the same coffee cup in all of your paintings with a coffee cup. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like these things which are uh, so ubiquitous across so much of our land and uh, everywhere really. Especially, I really do identify with the American idea of, of the work. That's where it came from. That's what I am. Anybody ever does a, a, a wall in a gallery someday of ten of your coffee cup paintings or ten coffee cup paintings and four prints? They will be struck by how enormously different each painting is. Horizon line, not horizon line. Desk line, not desk line. On, on a white background, on a orangish and purple background. It shows my desperation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows that that you know when a painter has a subject around which to build a thing, a painter will keep building around the thing. I'm so damn lucky to be a painter. And I want to say something about that because it, it, I've come to believe that being doing a painting is a good, really good painting is probably one of the more difficult things in the world to do. And I'm, I mean right up there with our most treasured accomplishments. And to be a part of that tradition, first of all, there's a real demeaning idea <laughs> because audaciousness beyond audaciousness to pick up a brush when what's happened in our tradition of painting, those great painted worlds are an achievement beyond miracles for me. It's engaging half a millennium of history or more. The Ridgeline paintings. These are these are paintings of seemingly impossible sort of mountainscapes. I think 1975, a painting called Yosemite Ridgeline is the first one. Am I right? Yeah. So do, it's just a big yeah thing. <laughs> so do do the ridgelines come out of Yosemite? Is that what informed? The kernel of you the know, idea I to think start it came doing. Came out of uh, where we discovered gold, and 
in the foothills. Paloma Ridge. Yeah. That's, that was painted on a spot. Oh, that was in plain air. The little one, plain air. Pa- the pastel. Right. You know, that's interesting because I've, I've, it strikes me that a lot of the ridge lines look like El Capitan. There are a lot of them. I actually went up there and painted. El Capitan? Mm-hmm. Is it intentional that there is a bit of Yosemite in the ridge lines? Well, you look for forms which you find interesting or, or beautiful or fitted to a compositional probe. I don't remember consciously. Half Dome, yes. I, I, that's a very specific image. I think it's hard to do anything with it, and you shouldn't do anything with it. It's already what it is, and you're never going to do much. Well, but by the time you started making half-dome paintings, there were 120, 110 years of half-dome paintings out there. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Which didn't scare you off of the idea. Were you consciously interested in engaging Yosemite as a subject because it was such a great subject of art in the West and art in America? I think it also was part of some uh, project the government had in getting artists to do, as I remember, paintings, landscape paintings of America, maybe the parks or something. And I remember Pearlstein did something, Alex Katz did something, there were a number of people. I wish I could remember more specifically, but it's been some time ago. But you didn't just make one half-dome painting, you, you kept making them. So yeah. there was something there yeah. for you. Yeah, right. Did that history, though, of, of so many painters going to Yosemite matter to you? Yes, and I like very much to identify with uh, Thomas Hill. And uh, I found a Thomas Hill painting in a Goodwill store with, with, retru- with stretcher bars, which were just redwood planks. And someone had hung it up by driving a nail through the top of the painting. To the wall. Do you still have it? I still have it. I had it restored. <laughs> oh my God. I paid 75 cents for it, too. Is it a Yosemite <laughs> Thomas Hill? It's I... a typical thing with a little fisherman and a sort of classic Thomas Hill. Wow. Tom, Thomas Hill is one of those 19th century American landscape painters who. Yeah. Uh, is too forgotten. He was really way important. too forgotten. Way too forgotten. That painting at the Crocker is fantastic. It is astounding painting. He's Hill's, Hill's Yosemite paintings are better than Beer Steps. Most most of Beer Steps. Now there's melodramatic, dramatic for one thing, more real. I feel. Which is why, to a native Californian <laughs> like 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 me and a near native Californian like you, that's probably why we. Uh, <laughs> That's all for part one of my conversation with Wayne Tebow. Next week, we'll continue our conversation about his painting, Yosemite, and Half Dome. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.